0: that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Are we in trouble? Are we? I don't know. I think it's not quite as simple as that. And in fact, as I started to prepare for this talk and I looked at the scriptural data, very quickly I came up with four quite different portraits of Jesus and stuff. Four portraits that in many ways seem almost contradictory, and I've given them names. These may not be perfect names. They're certainly not scriptural names, but I had a go at it, and they are Jesus, bountiful king, source of all blessing and good things, monastic Jesus, deliberately rejecting material goods, pro-business Jesus, who invites us to be quite shrewd about money and the use of it. And finally, otherworldly Jesus, who seems to operate on a set of da- values that are quite different to any uh, worldly values. Stuff doesn't really seem to matter at all. And I've turned that into some pictures for you. If you like pictures, there they are. I don't know if, how well you can see them. There's a sort of banquet there, a rather strange figure, a monk-like figure, and then a, a, a businesswoman and a sort of otherworldly clouds. So the question is, that I want to look at this morning, is which of those accurately represents What Jesus thought about stuff, your stuff, my stuff. Which of any of them is accurate and how can they possibly hang together? And of course, I want to suggest that there is an answer to that, but it's probably not what you expect. Would you pray with me and then we'll have a little go at this. Lord Jesus, we know that when we're talking about or thinking about possessions, We are talking about something very close to our hearts, which makes it difficult. So, Lord, as we just think about you, we listen to some of your stories and some of the things you said, I pray, Father, by your Spirit, you would speak to our hearts. That's where we need to hear you. We just say, come, Lord Jesus, come, Holy Spirit, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to go quite fast. It's going to be one of those talks where I'm going to go rattle through a whole lot of stuff. So I know that I'm going to risk being a little bit simplistic sometimes, and I hope you can understand my British voice. Um, Also, a little caveat before we get going. One of the difficulties of reading about what Jesus thinks about stuff, about material wealth, is there's no doubt that at times Jesus uses stories of money to make spiritual, if you want, points. But it's also true that when Jesus was talking about money, he was talking about money. This is Craig Blomberg who wrote an excellent book if you want a good book on this kind of stuff called Neither Poverty Nor Riches. And this is what he says. The two most important dangers to avoid, this is what we need to avoid in our thinking, is one, we must, become, uh, we must be, we must beware of turning Jesus' teaching into an explicit discourse on economic theory When it was never intended as such. But then, two, we must beware of not taking a passage as teaching fairly directly on economic matters simply because we recognize a second or spiritual level to the story. You've got to hold the two together. You can't simply separate them out. So let's have a look at the first portraits Jesus, the bountiful King. You cannot read the Gospels and the New Testament and miss this claim. This is what Paul said about Jesus. For by him, Jesus, all things, the material world, was created. All things in heaven and on earth. And heaven means the cosmos, not the dimension of God here. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then in Genesis, we hear or have heard that the stuff, the material world that was created is very good. It is an act of blessing in itself. The material world, your body, it's all good. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So you might expect that if Jesus is Lord of stuff, that while on earth, he might in some sense affirm the goodness of it, and lo, thus it is. Jesus tells numerous stories where there are positive, if you will, images of extremely wealthy people. Fathers, landowners, business owners, and kings, in whom, of whom there is no sense of criticism. Here are just some of the stories featuring positive wealthy figures. The prodigal son. The father in the prodigal son is clearly a wealthy man. The parable of the unmerciful servant. You mind, the one who doesn't forgive when he's forgiven by the master. Do you remember that story? Again, the master is clearly a wealthy man. The parable of the wedding banquet. The king who extends an invitation. This is a king. He's a wealthy king. He's able to put on a banquet. Abraham. Remember Abraham? Father of our faith. Poor wandering shepherd. Not so. Abraham was wealthy. Why do you think people found Sarah, Middle Eastern kings, found Sarah so attractive? I mean, she might have been beautiful, but more likely... She was extremely wealthy, a good catch. And the disciples themselves, when they were with Jesus, wrestled with their lack of stuff. And it's very interesting to me that this is what, uh, when Peter asks uh, Jesus, you know, or rather says to Jesus, look, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus doesn't go into some sort of spiritual diatribe. He says this very simply Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Now. What, just spiritual stuff? No. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. Property. After listening to those tapes in my little apartment near the Arsenal soccer ground, I became a Christian, largely due to my girlfriend. I did an Alpha course, and Alpha course basically presents the gospel. And some months later, I suddenly thought, well, you know, I I think I need to give some money to the church. It was a big thing for me, big, big thing. And I went, actually, I thought the Alpha course has massively blessed me. I'm going to go to the church that created the Alpha course, and I'm going to give them a check. And the check was in the hundreds, which was huge for me at the time. And I went and I gave that check, and I remember this sense of almost exaltation as I did it. It was as if something had been broken over me, over my life. And I was almost, felt like, literally dancing in the streets as I left the church. Within, I can't remember exactly the framework of time, maybe a couple of months, some money... They had been tied up in my family, big family, not immediate family, and argued about, suddenly everything was resolved. And I got a large chunk of money, and I was struck by the time, at the time, that it was nearly exactly 100 times what I had given. Maybe coincidence, I don't know. What do you think? Now, wait a minute. This is starting to sound a little like the prosperity gospel, right? And some of us are starting to feel a little anxiety because in the corner of our Christian imagination lurks somebody I want to call monastic Jesus. We're a bit scared of him. He's a little weird, frankly. We're not quite sure about him. But there is no doubt as we sung some of the songs we sang this morning that Jesus identifies with the poor. And warns explicitly about the dangers of riches for nothing less than our eternal salvation. Here's Craig Blomberg again. In the light of the larger patterns of Jesus' teaching, we dare not underestimate the potential deceitfulness of wealth to keep people out of the kingdom. Wow. Serious stuff. And again, Jesus tells many stories about the uh, the danger, if you will, to our eternal salvation of riches. The parable of the sower talks about the deceitfulness of riches. The rich-rung ruler, do you remember him, comes to Jesus with the question about salvation, and Jesus basically answers him in the end by saying, sell everything you have and give to the poor. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it very clear, again, his identification with those who are suffering and poor, and says, for where your treasure is, there will be your heart. And many of the most celebrated Christian saints chose poverty very deliberately, St. Francis of Assisi, yes, Mother Teresa. So perhaps Jonah Goldberg is right. If we're really honest, Jesus is kind of against wealth. What do you think? And that kind of tension throws most of us, if we're honest, into a state of a sort of eternal anxiety. Anxiety. We're not really sure how to hold these things together. We live in a very expensive part of the world. You know you need to work hard to get stuff to feed your families and educate them, but how much stuff is okay? Answers on a postcard. So we start rationalizing, we start drawing our own boundaries of what is acceptably rich, doesn't put our salvation at risk and absolve our consciences perhaps by giving to the church or we involved ourselves in a non-profit or something like that. But really we are profoundly and deeply anxious as people of faith. We're not really sure. So it comes as something of a relief when in the gospels as we're reading through them we come across somebody I want to call pro-business Jesus. Jesus, we know, was a tecton, as by trade. Do you know what a tecton was? Come on, you know. A carpenter. Yes, but kind of a bit more than that. A tecton was essentially a construction worker. Most likely, Jesus' family built homes. That's what they did. They would certainly have involved carpentry, but they were tradesmen. And when you think about that, Jesus as attacked on, it gives new sort of meaning to statements like he makes in Luke fourteen twenty eight. This is Jesus. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? It's very possible, isn't it, that Jesus got involved before his ministry in the construction projects where whoever it was who was paying for it ran out of money. And Jesus tells stories where there is an implicit and explicit command is too strong. But invitation to be shrewd with money, to use it well. The parable of the talents. Remember the parable of the talents? Ten given to one, five given to one, one given to another. Yep. yes. Of course, it's about being useful in the kingdom, but it's also actually making a point about using your resources well. You ought to have invested my money with bankers, says the story. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. This is business language. And then we read this morning from Luke 16, something which I don't think is a compliment. I don't know what you think, but when I listen to this, I'm like, he's not being nice about us. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That's us. We're not shrewd, Jesus seems to be saying. Yet the one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. We're talking about material possessions here. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? You've got to know how to use stuff, well some of my my personal greatest heroes of the Christian faith are Christian business people Early on in my Christian walk I came across a man and I ended up living in his house sharing a house with him and he had come to faith later in his life and he was just very good with money whatever he did with money worked really well he had set up an investment business investing high net worth Uh, individual's uh, money for them, making more money. Becomes a Christian, starts to think, how does this measure with my faith? Thinks, well, at least I could invest in socially responsible stuff. If I lose half my business, that's okay. Doubles his business. Whatever he touched turned to gold. So he says, well, what shall I do next with this money that seems to come my way? And he says, well, I'm gonna make two small investments. It was a long story how it happened, but in, I think it was in Afghanistan, two loans of about $1,000 to two business people in Afghanistan, one complete waste of time. The other invested it well and started to set up a business. That small micro-loan investment now has led to him having a, a business, a micro-loan um, micro business. 200 workers work for him in Sierra Leone the poorest country in the world, where they're basically uh, uh, helping people to set up businesses. He's just set up a bank in Sierra Leone, one of the first truly commercial banks. And guess what stories he tells? About how much money he's making? Nope. About people coming to faith because of the business that he's been doing with them, because business is an international language. One of the things we've been doing, or I've been doing with some of your folk, from Christchurch Vienna, we meet weekly and we talk about business and business ideas and how we could use business as mission right locally in the Mosaic district, particularly to connect with a generation, the millennial generation, who are the entrepreneurial generation. Business is a fantastic mission opportunity, and if that is of interest, please get in touch with you, with me. I'd love to tell you more about that. So maybe Jesus is a sort of pro-business guy, a kind of small businessman, and we can be a little bit more comfortable with that. But then maybe one day we wake up and we're reading our Gospels in our morning devotions and boom, Jesus drops a hand grenade. My kingdom is not of this world. What? There are times when Jesus seems to say that none of this stuff really matters at all. It's not about whether it's good or bad. We simply shouldn't spend any time thinking about it. Welcome otherworldly Jesus. Who tells stories like this. This is in Matthew. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They don't do anything. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these, but God so closes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O oh you of little faith? All you've got to do is have faith. That's all you've got to do. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, he says in Luke, nor be worried for all the nations, that's the pagans of the world, seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will just be added to you. It's so simple. I've met a few Christians who operate like that in my time. Some of them, it goes stunningly well. They never seem to think about money. They never ask for it for their ministries. And yet money just seems to turn up. And God seems to provide. I've met a few Christians like that. And it seems to go terribly badly. And they leave a trail of tears of debt and anger. So which is it? Which of those portraits of Jesus do you think most accurately represents what Jesus really thinks about stuff, about money, about wealth? If we're honest, most of us probably choose one of them. And then we kind of resolve the tensions in the other by sort of spiritualizing them, saying, well, he wasn't really talking about money. He was making a point about forgiveness. Or something else. But I want to suggest to you that that is slightly dishonest. Because all of those portraits contain at least a grain of truth. And there is another way to come at this problem, which I think resolves it. It gets to the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the human heart. And we read this in our reading this morning. In one simple statement, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And that language is language of worship. You'll never be at ease with stuff unless you know what stuff, the material world, money, all our possessions is for. I mentioned the creation story, Genesis, very quickly at the beginning of this talk. Creation tells us that stuff is good. Yes, we remember that. But it also tells us what stuff is for. All our things. Because the creation narrative and many scholars, contemporary scholars, are increasingly recognizing this, the Genesis narrative, Genesis 1, is something like the description of a temple, of the building of a temple. Temples are physical places, yes, made with stuff, real things. In temples, there is always an image of the god. It's true in all sorts of faiths. And they are the place where heaven, temples, where heaven and earth meet. And when you think about it like that, you start to see that Genesis 1 is very like a description of a building of a temple. In fact, we have descriptions of temple that are divided, uh, um, divided into six stages six stages, six days the physical space of the temple in creation is the creation the creation itself the physical world, the material world is the physical space the image in the temple is us we were created man, male and female in the image of God. And what is the expectation in this physical space where there is the image of God? That God will be present. And so you have in the narrative of Genesis, the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden. And in many ways, that's probably what it means when it says that God rested. He wasn't tired. It means that God came to rest in the temple that was created the material world in which the image us God rested his presence came to rest and we read in Psalm 19 this morning the heavens that's not our father in heaven it means the cosmos the material world the universe the heavens declare the glory of God And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It's the language of worship. The whole creation was intended to worship God, including the material world. So what would it look like if we took that seriously and we rewrote those four portraits of Jesus that I presented to you and told it instead of four contradictory sort of pictures that you can't really hold together, and actually turned it into a narrative, a story that ends in worship. Here's how we might rewrite what we've been thinking about. God the bountiful king created very good stuff But we were never intended to worship stuff, that's idolatry, which leads to slavery, but rather to be wise and fruitful stewards of it, lifting it all back up as an act of worship so that in the end, all our stuff is transformed to reflect God's kingdom, His values, His justice, His mercy, His love, His glory. And the whole material world becomes a temple for God's presence. So rather than having to wrestle with what sometimes seem quite contradictory statements that Jesus makes, really the question that I want to leave you with this morning is not which one of those portraits that I presented is true. They're all true but rather, where am I in the story? Where are you this morning in that story? Perhaps you're somebody who needs to understand the sheer abundance of God's creation, that you live with a sense of poverty, wherever it came from. That was certainly me, which is ironic because I wasn't poor, but it can happen. Perhaps you're somebody like that. Or perhaps you do need to stop idolizing wealth. Perhaps you really do. Perhaps that's where you are in the story, that you need to think seriously about the wealth that you have and what you do with it. Or perhaps you're not really very good with it. You need to do a Dave Ramsey course. You need to learn how to steward wealth properly, take care of it, or even invest it. Or perhaps you need to figure out what it means to use your stuff, your material goods, your money, to worship God because you've never really thought about that. Which part of that rich, complex story is Jesus asking to you to attend to this morning? And what do you need to do with all your stuff? And one of the few things I remember from those tapes that my girlfriend of the time brought me was, you know, the tithing thing? Do you ever talk about tithing here in this church? The tithing is not that little bit that you siphon off for God. The tithe was an ancient way of demonstrating your total allegiance to a king. So the part represents the whole. In other words, everything you have. What do you need to do with everything you have? so that it becomes an act of worship to God. All your stuff declares the glory of God until our physical world becomes a temple for God's presence. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we uh, continue to worship, as we come to take communion, and we, we see this thing of blessing bread, holding it up, breaking it, lifting it, the material thing of bread, lifting to it to you as an act of worship. Father, I pray this morning that you would put your finger on which part of the story we need to attend to. I thank you for the faithfulness of everybody here in giving to this church and stewarding wealth well. But Lord, we know there is more and that you are calling us into a great narrative, a transformative narrative where all our goods, all our resources are turned to you in an act of worship to reveal your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.